Welcome back to The Curious Clinicians, a medical podcast that asks why. I'm Hannah Abrams, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Tony Brew and Avi Cooper. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Hey, Avi. Very, very good to see you both this evening. Hello. All right. So today we are going to examine one of the most striking breath patterns that we see in medicine, chain stokes respirations. I am thrilled to learn more. Avi, where do you want to start? So I thought it made sense to start with some definitions and particularly what chain stokes respirations are. And so I think the best word to describe this is it's literally a cycle of hyperpnea, which is fast and deep breathing, and apnea, or breath holding. And the cycle just goes back and forth between the two patterns. And have either of you ever seen this clinically? I remember being a medical student and my attending pulling us to the bedside to sort of watch our patients breathing and going through all of the cycles over about a minute. And it's very striking, right? I mean, it's just, it's like, it's unmistakable. Like this is not a normal breathing pattern. Yes. And what clinical context in general have you, either of you seen this in? Yeah, I feel like I see it most commonly in patients who have heart failure and you know, more specifically patients with reduced EF heart failure. Yeah, yeah. And, and as we'll see, it may even be even more specific than that. It's may, maybe low EF and low cardiac output as well. Hmm. So that's exactly right. Yeah, I think you alluded to this earlier, but it might be helpful to talk a little bit about the history of chain stokes respirations as a clinical sign because- I think actually, even if I don't ask that question, you're going to take us through the history because that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, I, it's so Tony. You know, your your stories have gone back billions of years. This goes back thousands of years, and it, it, this is a very old clinical sign, probably one of the oldest. And it was described by Hippocrates or the Hippocratic authors, depending on who you think wrote this stuff down um, in ancient Greece. But it's thought to have it was really described around 400 BC, and Hippocrates described a patient, and he actually named the patient. It was Philiscus was the, the name. And he was observed to have respirations that were like that of a person recollecting himself, rare and large, was how it was written down. And Hippocrates didn't really provide us with a clinical pathologic correlation for this patient, but I think it's a fair description of the pattern that we now know as chain stokes. It seems like that is what he was describing. Hmm. Rare so and large. Skin. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, in. uh, why isn't it just called Hippocratic breathing or Hippocrates breathing instead of chain Stokes respirations? I actually really like Hippocratic breathing. I think <laughs> that actually has a, a, a certain, it is about the, yeah, yeah the twin yeah, traps. Yeah. I mean, it has a certain, the a certain lilt to it, but you know, maybe because he didn't adequately clinically correlate, I don't know. But John Chain and William Stokes were European physicians in the 19th century, and Chain was from Scotland, Stokes from Ireland. They each independently and in parallel described this pattern of respiration in patients that they were taking care of that were dying of heart failure. And they both published their observations. And so Chain wrote in a monograph actually that he titled A Case of Apoplexy in Which the Fleshy Part of the Heart is Converted into Fat. So a very concise title. He wrote, the only peculiarity in the last days of his illness, which lasted nine days, was in the state of the respiration. For several days, his breathing was irregular. It would entirely cease for a quarter of a minute. Then it would become perceptible, though very low. Then by degrees, it became heaving and quick, and then it would gradually cease again. This revolution in the state of his breathing occupied about a minute, during which there were about 30 acts of respiration. So that was John Chain's description of what we now know as Chain Stokes breathing. And 
William Stokes also observed it, and he wrote, as a, and I'll quote, it consists in the occurrence of a series of inspirations increasing to a maximum and then declining in force and length until a state of apparent apnea is established. In this condition, the patient may remain for such a length of time as to appear dead when a low inspiration marks the commencement of a new ascending and then descending series of inspirations. The decline in the length and force of respirations is as regular and remarkable as their progressive increase. I don't know. I, I feel like after hearing those two descriptions and comparing that to rare and large, I, I kind of get how it's named after these two guys. It's like these are pretty good descriptions and yeah, nothing against Hippocrates, but I think that these are a little bit better. And I, and I think that, you know, hearing those initial descriptions is fascinating, but I remain interested in the mechanism behind this breathing pattern. Like, you know, what sets it off and why specifically does it seem to have arisen or does it arise in patients who have um, low cardiac output states? So let's dive in and focus on the, the first question. And so the breathing pattern is cyclical, right? So something must start the cycle. And a key clinical point to understand is that chronic hypocapnia or low blood carbon dioxide levels is common in patients with advanced heart failure. And this may result from chronic congestion that leads to stimulation of irritant lung receptors, but there's probably other reasons as well why patients with advanced heart failure have chronic hypocapnia. But importantly, there was a 1993 study in the journal Chest that found that patients with chain Stokes respirations consistently had low CO2 levels, low carbon dioxide. So chronic hypocapnia really seems to be the inciting event somehow. Hmm. So how would chronic hypocapnia lead to these respirations? Is that the only event or just the first one? Well, so first we need to establish how our brains control breathing. So as you know, breathing is either volitional or automatic. So just sitting here, we're using automatic breathing because we're not really thinking about it or when we sleep so that we can remain alive while we sleep. <laughs> but during periods of exertion or anxiety, we can increase voluntarily our, our respiratory rate. So Breathing is controlled by the aptly named respiratory control center in the medulla in the brainstem, and it receives input from peripheral chemo and irritant and stretch receptors in the blood and the lungs, but also from the pH in the cerebrospinal fluid via a central chemoreceptor. And it adjusts breathing patterns to try to maintain a steady, normal serum carbon dioxide level. And the way that I think about it is kind of like a thermostat in your home that adjusts the furnace output to maintain a temperature goal, it's kind of like a thermostat. So it turns out that hypocapnia has a specific effect on the respiratory control center, at least partly from effects on the pH of CSF. And so as CSF pH goes down with hypocapnia, because the this carbon dioxide levels in the blood are going down, it drops the pH in the CSF, there's less stimulation of these central chemoreceptors, which leads to shallower, less frequent breaths, or then even apnea. And the blood carbon dioxide level at which this occurs is the apnea threshold. When the CO2 level passes below that, breathing stops. All right. So I can maybe understand why the respiratory rate would decrease, but why does hypocapnia lead to apnea? Like, I feel like total cessation of breathing, that strikes me as like a bad thing that the brain would want to avoid having happen. In general, you're correct. It, apnea is a bad I thing. I thought I, I thought I learned something. <laughs> but if you think about it, with severe hypocapnia, the blood pH can rise dramatically, which can lead to a severe respiratory alkalosis. And so by crossing, which can cause seizures, and, and that's not good either. So by crossing an apnea threshold, 
the low CO2 level kind of shuts down the process and it prevents us from voluntarily becoming too alkalotic. The brain is essentially saying, "Uh uh-uh, no more, can't go below that. We need this carbon dioxide level to go back up. And it turns out that patients with chronic hypocapnia, they often live just above their apnea thresholds with respect to that carbon dioxide level, and it might not take much to dip below that. Hmm. So how does that sort of result in what we see in terms of the Chain-Stokes respiration phenotype? Yeah, so that's specifically actually how it starts. So in heart failure patients with who have low cardiac output and ejection fraction, their CO2 levels are often, like I said, already close to the apnea threshold. So it doesn't have to drop much to go below the threshold. And once it does, an apnea occurs. So Wow. Um, that's just, that's so incredible. Yeah. I, I had always thought that that, um, you know, change would be stochastic or random, but it seems like it's really prompted by something. So yeah, that's actually how it starts. So in heart failure patients who have low ejection fraction, low cardiac output, their CO2 levels are often already close to the apnea threshold. So it wouldn't have to drop much to go below that level, below that threshold. And once it does, apnea occurs. So let me ask either of you, what if this occurred in someone who didn't have advanced heart failure? How would the brain respond to that drop in carbon dioxide level? Well, so the the normal response to a drop in carbon dioxide level would be to decrease the respiratory rate, which would then result in eventually a rise back up in the respiratory rate and a resumption of normal breathing. That's what I assume would happen. You mean a rise in carbon dioxide levels? That's right. Yeah, exactly. It would just kind of correct itself really fast <laughs> and you know, it would just normalize. But under normal circumstances, that thermostat in our brain is able to quickly adjust. And the key to that whole process is that the brain can quickly and Im- immediately sense changes in carbon dioxide levels and respond to them. Okay. So what happens in heart failure? What goes wrong? So a crucial concept to understand is that in patients with advanced heart failure, they actually have slower circulation speeds than normal. And this wasn't something that I knew before preparing this, although it makes perfect sense. So a 1933 study found that the blood of such patients, they actually circulate much more slowly compared to those with normal cardiac function with a circulation time of about 26 seconds in advanced heart failure and 15 seconds in people with normal cardiac function. And this results from decreased cardiac output. It just flows more slowly. So normally during an apnea, the respiratory control center will sense that the rising serum carbon dioxide and it'll end the apnea and we'll just go back to breathing normally. But in advanced heart failure, the increased circulatory time, it actually renders this relationship between ventilation, carbon dioxide, and the brain trying to sense all of this and respond in real time. It renders that relationship essentially unstable and unreliable. That's so fascinating. So even though the carbon dioxide level in the blood is coming up rather quickly, that message isn't getting to the brain and there's like this disconnect with between what's happening in the brain, sorry, what's happening in the lungs and what the brain senses. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Exactly. And part of it too is because the changes in CO2 levels in the blood also have to alter the pH of the CSF. And so those changes take a little bit of time. And so, you know, if you add another delay in like slow blood flow, it's going to set up for this kind of unstable relationship. But so specifically in this circumstance, instead of a rapid response and correction of hypercapnia that occurs in normal circumstances, 
the brain simply doesn't realize in real time that the CO2 levels are rising during the apnea. And so the, the CO2 levels that the brain is seeing are still below the apnea threshold, and it persists much longer than it should. And eventually, the CSF pH will change, and it'll sense those higher CO2 levels that occurred during the apnea. But by then, the CO2 levels have risen higher than they should have, and the patient is now hypercapnic. And the brain's response then is to do rapid, deep breathing, which is that, you know, that compensatory hyperpnic phase of chain stokes. Yeah. Wow. So so the brain is essentially reacting to an out-of-date carbon dioxide level. Just so in the same way that it was lagging behind the response to the apnea because of the slow blood flow, it's getting delayed information. Yes, exactly. That's spot on. And what results is the brain's, it's always responding to delayed carbon dioxide information. And it's constantly then overcorrecting. It overcorrects respiratory acidosis, which leads to hyperventilation and respiratory alkalosis and apnea. And this cycle keeps repeating itself over and over and over again in the chain stokes pattern. And you may see this referred to in the literature as loop gain. And that's actually, it's a concept borrowed from electrical circuitry, basically where these, these circuits, these cycles just build on themselves once they get going. Wow. It almost seems like this is an example of a breathing pattern that's extreme on both ends. You know, maybe we breathe in this more narrow range where these patients become apneic for long periods of time, and then they have these periods of tachypnea that just don't happen normally. It, it, I, it, I don't know. I kind of find it fascinating, but I also think it might be helpful to sort of hear about a hypothetical example patient. I don't, I don't know if you'd be able to provide something like that for us. Yeah, I'm happy to oblige. So let's imagine we have a patient with advanced heart failure who has a baseline CO2 level, maybe like in the low 30s millimeters of mercury, and they have an apnea threshold of 30. And so for no particular reason, maybe while the patient's sleeping, the PCO2, the, the CO2 level drifts down below 30 and an apnea results. And so what's going to happen will be the serum CO2 rises during the apnea, but the respiratory control center doesn't sense that immediately because of the slower circulatory time. And as a result, the apnea phase persists longer than it should or normally would, and the CO2 levels continues to rise and rise. And eventually, the respiratory control center actually senses hypercapnia and responds by tachypnea, hyperpnea, fast, rapid, and deep breathing. And then this increase in respiratory rate and tidal volume drives CO2 levels back down below the apnea threshold, and an apnea ensues again. And the cycle just repeats itself. And this is, when you saw that patient, Hannah, that's Chain Stokes. That's what's happening. Wow. I would have thought it that this was totally random, sort of like how it goes back and forth. But in fact, the change is not very stochastic at all. Yeah, it's I, really incredible, incredible physiology. Uh, Avi, can these can these patients break the cycle somehow? Like, like I'm just like I feel bad. I feel like they're suddenly stuck in this yeah. loop that you mentioned. Is there is there any way that that cycle is broken? So I think a lot of it has to do. And I'm not a I'm not a sleep physician, but I think a, a lot of it has to do with kind of managing the hypocapnia and yeah. trying to improve the the cardiac function and yep. um, treat their heart and, failure. Yeah, the exactly. Output. Kind of yeah. treat the underlying issues, which is often the answer. In <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense, though, right? If if part of the, the the lesion here is that the poor flow from their heart failure, you know, let's give them some inotropes or otherwise make their heart failure better. That makes sense. Avi, is there anything else you wanted to tell us about so, on this topic? So I was surprised to learn that John Chain, as we have come to pronounce his name in America, 
likely would have pronounced his name Cheney in Scotland, because I think that's just how his name is pronounced, actually. So I don't know if I'll be referring to this breathing pattern as Cheney Stokes, but I probably should. His name was, I think his name was John Cheney, and we just don't call him by his actual name. <laughs> yeah, I'm sticking with Chain Stokes. <laughs> Um, all right. So beyond the potential changing of his name, uh, any other take home points you want us to think about? Yeah. And I guess before I before I go into that, it sounds like we've had two proposals tonight to just call this Hippocratic breathing <laughs> because he originally described it and or to call this Cheney Stokes respiration. Um, but it sounds like n- neither motion has been accepted. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it under consideration maybe for next time. So, so my take-home points would be that chain Stokes respiration is triggered by the combination of chronic hypocapnia and decreased cardiac output. They both have to be there together. So chronic hypocapnia leads to apneic episodes, and low cardiac output causes slow circulatory flow and delayed responses to change in serum carbon dioxide levels. And this results in a cycle of apnea and hyperpnea and tachypnea because of loop gain, as the brainstem's response to changes in the carbon dioxide levels is always lagging behind and is never really able to react in real time to what's going on in the blood. That's great. I feel like I have nine other questions for you about <laughs> chronic hypocapnia. <laughs> anyway. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll cover those uh, nine questions uh, after we wrap up this episode. But Avi, thank that was really awesome. And that does actually wrap up this episode of The Curious Clinicians. Thanks, as always, for joining us. As a reminder, you can join our mailing list at CuriousClinicians.com to stay up to date on episode releases and have detailed notes delivered directly to your inbox. We are excited to partner with VCU Health to offer CME and MOC credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals just for listening to this episode. For more information, visit ce.vcuhealth.org slash CuriousClinicians. And as always, the information contained in this episode is for educational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Until next time, we've been The Curious Clinicians.